open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Our focus this morning will be on Philippians 2, 9 through 11. We'll be reading verses 1, 27 through 2, 11. Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even Death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, so that we might be properly humble before you, we pray that you would exalt Christ now. That He would be exalted among us. That the posture of our hearts and lives would be one of bowing before Your Son and confessing He's Lord. So bless the preaching of Your Word to open our eyes to behold the light of Your glory in the face of Your Son. In His name we pray. Amen. In verses 5 through 8, we came to the ground of Christ's humiliation. And now, in verses 9 through 11, we're carried up to the heaven of His exaltation. And remember, in this, Paul's aim is an ethical one, 
not a metaphysical one. Paul surprises us by opening the body of his letter with a command in 1 and verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, or better translated, live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this surprises us because Paul's standard method is to open with theology and then go into ethics. Doctrine first, and then discipleship rooted in those very doctrines that he's laid out. But though Paul leads with a command here, it's made plain again and again that Paul's commands are not air plants. They don't just hang. They're rooted in doctrine and truth. They're rooted in the person and work of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this is an all-encompassing command. So every command we come across in Philippians is under this auspice in reference to the gospel of Christ. And the result of their obedience to that command is that Paul will hear that they're standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then we come to the second command in 2 and verse, verses 1 and 2. So, so the second command flows from the first one. So, and then the command, verse 2, complete my joy being of the same mind. So the result of their obeying the first command is that Paul will hear that they're obeying the second command. First command, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul will hear that they're striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. The second command, be of the same mind. And now, Paul basically repeats the same command in verse 5. Takes it from a different angle. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, or which Christ had. The difference now is that Paul, instead of simply elaborating on the command, illustrates the command. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so then living as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ means imitating the Christ of the gospel. That's where we've come. If that's the case though, the question that should come to our minds is, if Paul's concern is for us to imitate Christ in His humility, why does he go on to speak of Christ in His glory? The exaltation of Christ has implications for our Im imitation of His humiliation in a myriad of ways. Take just one. The only reason you can imitate Christ in His humility 
is because the exalted Christ, the right hand of the Father, has sent His Spirit to make you new and is conforming you to the image of His Son. Of the Son. But while there are a myriad of reasons that Paul could have gone into tying Christ's exaltation to our imitation of His humiliation, Paul does not elaborate on one here. There is perhaps one reason subtly implied, which we'll get to in, the, in our conclusion, but as far as explicitly elaborating on anything, not a hint of it. So what is Paul doing now as he's speaking of the exalted Christ? Is he chasing a rabbit? He's chasing a unicorn. Paul is writing to the Philippians about unity and humility in the body of Christ for the cause of the gospel. And as soon as he starts to go into Christ as an illustration of that humility, he gets carried away as he justly should be. To remain focused on some lesser thing when confronted with a transcendent glory is no virtue. So Paul surrenders here to the strong current of this theology And having done so, it would be a shame not to follow it out to its glorious end. It would be a shame to leave off at the shame of the cross and not ponder the glory of the resurrection. And so is it not beautiful that in verses 6 through 11, which are, I believe, the most profound treatment of Christology we find in the Scriptures, Is it not beautiful and glorious that they come to us, as it were, by way of a purposeful accident? Paul isn't taking up the matter of Christology. He just gets carried away into it. Now, when I say that these are the most profound treatment of Christology, let me clarify. Whenever we take up the subject of the Christ, by which we refer to the God-man, thinking of Christ from His incarnation forward. When we take up the the subject, not of the Son of God eternal, but of Christ the God-man, when we take that up, we do so under two headings, considering His person and His work. And the two are integrally related. You cannot separate the two. But we We nonetheless, in in thinking on them, pondering them, systematic theology put them under these two categories of His person and His work. And here, whenever I say the most profound treatment of Christology, this is a treatment more intensely of His person than His work. Concerning His work, there are other places we could go to in Scripture that are more elaborate. You're wanting to understand the work of Christ? As regards his acts on this earth, I don't know that Philippians 3, 21 through 26 can be topped as far as thoroughness and hitting all the categories. If you're wanting to consider the work of Christ now as he sits at the right hand of the Father, 
Well, then just study the book of Hebrews in several places. But in dealing with the person of Christ, and and when we speak of that, we're talking about the hypostatic union, the union of two natures in one person, the union of a divine nature and a human nature in the one person Christ. And also we, we would speak of the two states of Christ, Christ in His humiliation and His exaltation. When we're considering those things, the person of Christ, we've come to the highest peak in the Himalayas of Scripture at this point. Don't think of this text whenever I say it's the most profound treatment, as though it's this high mountain on a plain. It's a high mountain in a range. Glorious, nonetheless. Before we climb the mountain, let's get an aerial view, a drone shot, because we will fail to appreciate the peak which we are studying if we don't look at it in reference to the valley from whence we've just come. Traversing Philippians 1, 6 through 11 is like going immediately from the Dead Sea to the peak of Everest. That's the difference in topography here. Our our text takes us from as low below sea level as a high above it. In verses 6 through 8, we are plunged as deep as hell. And in verses 9 through 11, we are raised as high as heaven. We transition from Christ as servant to Christ as Lord. Now, it's true that Christ, as He walked this earth, remained Lord. But... It was his acting as servant that was so prominent that that glory was hid from our eyes. His was a lordly servantship and his is a servantly lordship. But as we contemplate him being the Christ, God's prophet, priest, and king, there is a clear distinction to his earthly ministry being characterized by humility and his heavenly ministry in those same offices being characterized by glory. And note this, while Christ's humiliation is complete, his exaltation has not yet been fully consummated and come to its height. God has exalted him, verse 9, so that every knee should bow, verse 10. His humiliation was complete when he said, it is finished. His exaltation will not be complete until... In essence, he says, it has begun, and we will forever be with the Lord. There's nothing lacking in Christ's glory, but its full manifestation and man's acknowledgement of that glory still lies ahead. 
Whenever we talk about Christ's exaltation, there are four parts to His exaltation. I, I won't go into these in any kind of depth, but I want you to have the categories. When we speak of Christ's exaltation, it involves His resurrection, His ascension, His session, and His return. Three of these are, and one is not yet. Christ is risen. He ascended. He's seated. And He will return. As we prepare to climb something of this peak, and we will traverse the whole of it, let us in humility acknowledge, as we look back, that that valley is covered in a mist. And we still cannot fathom just how low Christ went. And this peak is enveloped in cloud. Even so, let's take heed to the word of Richard Sibbs. Oh, it is a sweet meditation, beloved, to think that our flesh is now in heaven at the right hand of God. And that flesh that was born of the virgin, that was laid in the manger, that went up and down doing good, that was made a curse for us and humbled to death and lay under the bondage of death three days, that this flesh is now glorious in heaven. That this person is Lord over the living and the dead. It is an excellent book to study this, beloved. Study Christ in the state of His humiliation and exaltation. We've tried to plumb something of the depth. Let us now, by God's grace and Spirit, soar as high as we can to these heights of His exaltation. The first thing Paul does, perhaps the most significant thing that he does, is that he does not simply transition to Christ's exaltation, he grounds Christ's exaltation in his humiliation. Paul does not simply tell us that Christ was humbled and now Christ is exalted. He tells us that Christ is exalted because Christ humbled himself. His exaltation was a necessary conclusion and consequence to his humiliation. The Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bovink writes, The death of Christ, the end of His humiliation, was simultaneously the road to His exaltation. Now, there are several reasons why Christ must be exalted. Following His death, He must be resurrected because He is the one who said, I am the resurrection, and the life. He did not say, I will be. He said His very personhood can be explained in this way. He is resurrection and life. Jesus remaining dead makes as much sense as a square circle. Jesus must rise because though His human nature experienced death, even in that, He is the one who said in John 10, 
He's the one who has authority to lay his life down and to take it up again. He is the eternal son, Lord over life and death. This also arises because of the father's promise. So Peter, quoting the 16th Psalm, says, God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why not? For, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That is a promise to the Son. He must be resurrected because of God's faithfulness. But again here, Christ's exaltation is simply saying it's a necessary consequence to His humiliation. That's the point. None of these other reasons, this singular reason is in view here. So we could give a myriad of reasons why Christ must rise, but the reason Paul is zeroed in on at this point is that Christ must rise. Christ must be exalted because Christ humbled Himself. Notice how the subject of our sentences has changed at this point. We were told that Christ humbled Himself. And though our focus is still on Christ, He's no longer the subject of these sentences. He's the direct object of them. Christ humbled Himself. God exalted Him. This is how God always works. This is why this must be. James 4.6 God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter, quoting the same passage James is there, Psalm 3.34, comments, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Did you hear that? So that? Humble yourself, so that God may exalt you. Jesus laid this down as an axiom. Matthew 23, 11, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the disciples, the greatest of you, must be a servant. We need to remember that in Christ's humiliation, He did so, taking the form of a servant. Coming in the likeness of men. Representing us. As a man, he perfectly pleased God. He perfectly pleased the Father. Even as he was bearing the Father's wrath for our transgressions. Because he was doing so in obedience to the Father. So you see something of how this therefore works? 
You see the glory of it? We're not told here simply that Christ's exaltation is. You're told that Christ's exaltation must be. And the reason that it must be is because of His humiliation. Because the valley was so deep, the mountain must be so high. Now I just said that the word therefore, I think is paramount, but perhaps it's just as important that we meditate on Him. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. It's the person, Jesus, who is exalted by the Father. So just as it was the person, Jesus, who emptied Himself, it's the person who's exalted. It wasn't a nature that was humbled, nor a nature that is exalted. Jesus' divine nature did not become less in Christ's humiliation, and His divine nature doesn't become more with His exaltation. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. He does not change. And yet... In the exaltation of Christ, His human nature did change. It was glorified. But don't make the mistake in seeing that, of thinking that the exaltation simply relates to a nature. No, it is Christ the person who is exalted by the Father. And this means, yes, His body was glorified, but it also means His divinity, which He's had eternally, is vindicated and manifest in the exaltation of His person. Now the exaltation of our Lord then, you see, does not simply then mean a return to the status quo. Return to how things were. When God exalts Christ, He exalts the God-man, the second Adam, the mediator, the head of the church, the first fruits of the resurrection, Lord of new creation. See if you can sense the significance of this in, John, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, 1-5, the opening lines of Jesus' prayer there. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is to receive this glory, a glory that He's had with the Father since the world existed. But now do you sense that this being glorified is all rooted and related to His being given a people and accomplishing a work concerning them that the Father gave Him to do. Jesus' glory in His incarnation was veiled like 
the sun behind a cloud. What you're being told here is that with the exaltation of Christ, the cloud is removed, the sun shines through, but yet the cloud is not removed. Actually, the cloud remains, and yet the sun shines through. The cloud no longer is a hindrance to your beholding His glory. Rather, the cloud is now the instrument by which you behold the glory. Jesus, in His exaltation, as the sun rises, it carries now the cloud with it and is nonetheless bright and glorious. The sun carried the cloud of human flesh with Him into heaven. With his exaltation. Jesus in his exaltation. Was not lifted up any higher than he was. But he is lifted up as he now is. Meaning he's lifted up as God the Son incarnate. The God man. The Christ. Mark Jones explains. Jesus did not rise from the dead alone. He did not ascend alone. He does not sit in glory alone. No, He rose, ascended, and sits as the husband of His bride. He took with Him into glory all His people on His breast so that we as, are as secure as He is in the heavenly places. He rose as God's prophet, priest, and king. These are all mediatorial offices. Offices of representation. So when Christ rose, we rose with Him. Ephesians 2.6 We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You may think that right now the only kind of benefits you reap from Christ are in regard to His humiliation. You trust that one day you will reap the fruits of Christ in His exaltation, but that seems distant to you. Oh, beloved, you died with Christ, and you have risen with Christ. The life you possess as a saint in your rebirth is as part of the new creation. Christ right now sits on David's throne at the right hand of the Father from which He rules over His people. Christ right now sits at the right hand of the Father as our high priest interceding for us. Christ right now sits at the right hand of the Father as the prophet sending His Spirit to make known His truth. Before His incarnation... And humiliation, Jesus had all authority. But prior to his incarnation and humiliation, the only way he could exercise that authority in righteousness and holiness, the only way he could exercise it was in our judgment and condemnation. But as the exalted Christ is not only Lord over creation, He's Lord over new creation. Prior or 
with regard, without regard to his humiliation. The lordship of Christ could only create man and undo them. But with his exaltation as the God-man, he can make new men of old men. You hear this in Ephesians 1, 16 through 23. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet. Everything was already under Jesus' feet. What's this saying he put everything under his feet? He's put everything under the feet of the God-man who has redeemed a new humanity. It goes on. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Or consider the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, Christ had all authority. But now it's being given to him as the God-man. What are the results of that? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. There are many texts that could bring this out more. Let me read just one more. Hebrews 2, 5-9. through It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, He's left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. The exalted Christ means Not simply that Jesus has all authority and control. He eternally has that. But that he has it redemptively. And further, the exaltation of Christ here involves the Father bestowing on him a name that is above every name. What is that name? I'm almost tempted not to tell you at this point, but let you be held in suspense as I believe Paul does here. As you read this text, you're tempted to initially say, what is that name? It's Jesus that is bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So you're tempted to say Jesus, and there's a sense in which that's true. But I don't think that's the best answer. It's something like, if you want to paint your wall a certain color and you just can't find the right the right shade of brown that you want. You walk into your neighbor's house and and they've 
just painted. And, and you say, that's exactly the color I've been looking for. What color is that? And they say, brown. Well, thank you very much. My eyes caught that much. I was hoping for a, a bit more of a specific answer. Jesus is kind of correct. Get to how that is in a bit. I don't believe that's exactly what we're told here. What is the name bestowed on the God-man by the Father? I think Walter Hansen masterfully expresses what Paul is masterfully doing in our text here. He writes, By placing Lord first in this acclamation. And you need to know that in the original language, Lord comes before Jesus Christ at verse 11. Every tongue confess that, more strictly translated, every tongue confess Lord Jesus Christ. By placing Lord first in this acclamation, the Greek text puts, puts the emphasis on that name. That name was dramatically withheld until every tongue in the whole creation reveals that name. The hymn announced that God exalted the crucified one and gave him a name that is above every name, but it did not immediately reveal that name. Then the hymn portrays the supreme sovereignty of the name given to Jesus in the scene of every knee bowed before Jesus because he bears that name, but still it did not reveal that name. The hymn elaborately described the absolute authority of the one who bears that name over all three realms of creation in heaven and on earth and under the earth. But still that name remains unspoken. Finally, the almost unbearable suspense is broken when the hymn summons all creation to acknowledge in one voice that the name that is above every name, that name that is above every name, Lord Jesus Christ. What is the confession of all who bow before Christ? It is the very name that the Father bestowed on His Son. Lord. If you think it odd, that name here refers to a title, listen to Romans 19.16. On his robe and on his thigh, there is a name written. King of kings, Lord of lords. Did you not hear in, in, in several of these texts that we've read that are bringing out these things, the Lordship of Christ? Put on display in his exaltation. The Son of God is eternally Lord. But whenever we confess Jesus Christ is Lord, we've said something more. We've said that the God man is Lord. You see the flow of our text now. The flow of our text is Jesus made himself a servant. God made him Lord. And that's the flow and the logic of our text 
is that God made him Lord because Christ made himself a servant. Now in verse 9, we have Christ's exaltation. And on one side of it, there's a therefore that looks back. And on the other side of it, there's a so that that looks forward. So the therefore looks back to verses 6 through 8 at the grounds of Christ's exaltation. Now, verses 10 and 11, we look forward to the goal of His exaltation. Why is Christ exalted? From the vantage point of verse 9, we can say He's exalted because of His humiliation and obedience to the Father. Then we can also look forward and say He's exalted for the purpose of... And the answer is stunning. Christ is exalted so that... Every, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The answer is, Christ is exalted by the Father so that He might be exalted. And you see the, the harmony between the humiliation and the exaltation here now? You were told in verses 6 through 8 that Jesus humbled Himself that He might humble Himself. He took on flesh that He might be crucified. And now you're told that the Father exalts Christ so that Christ might be exalted. God exalts Christ and bestows on Him the name that is above every name. So that He might be exalted. Christ's exaltation by the Father in verse 9, involves His resurrection, His ascension, and His session. But those are yet still for the greater purpose that is to happen at His return of His being exalted as He's recognized by all creation as Lord. Now at this, this point, let me explain what I was speaking of earlier that I don't think Jesus is the best answer to what that name is. So how is Jesus even even an answer to the question of what's the name bestowed on Him? I believe Lord to be a commentary on His name, Jesus. Jesus means Yeshua, Joshua. Yahweh saves. He's God's mediator, God's prophet, priest, and king. Bringing redemption to the people of God. He does not simply mediate as a man God's redemption like Moses the prophet, David the king, or Elijah the prophet. He's not simply a man mediating God's salvation. He is God as man mediating God's salvation. In these verses, we see an infinite cosmos of grace We're not like planets. We're not like asteroids. We're pebbles swirling in this 
cosmos thick with God's grace. And even though God has put so much grace upon us to give us the Son, know that there is one thing God will not share. He who gave His Son will not give His glory to another. Isaiah 48, 11, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. But here God is exalting one so that He might be exalted and recognized universally as Lord. You see how Lord is now a commentary on Jesus? It says not simply that He brings Yahweh salvation, He is Yahweh bringing salvation. Whenever we see every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, Paul alludes to Isaiah 45, 22 through 23. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone forth, out, gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow Every tongue shall swear alliance. Now in Isaiah, it's clearly God to whom everyone bows and swears allegiance. And here he is exalting one to be bowed to and confessed in exactly that way. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. In John 5, 18, we're told, this is why the Jews were seeking to all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They rejected Jesus, saying he's a man who makes himself equal with God, whenever the reality was, it was a God who had taken to himself flesh. And one day, all creation will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not simply a man acting as God. He is God having taken on flesh, exalted in the heavens by the Father. The text looks forward to the very end Before the new beginning, every knee, this is all for the purpose that every knee should bow. D.A. Carson summarizes, this text promises that Jesus has the last word. That He is utterly vindicated. That in the end, no opposition against Him will stand. This is not to be, there there will not be universal, universal salvation. There will be universal confession As to who He is. That means that either we repent and confess Him by faith as Lord now. Or we will confess Him in shame and terror on the last day. But confess Him, we will. See, before we come to this universal confession. Even the universal confession spoken of in Isaiah. Isaiah first gave this universal offer. Turn to me and be saved All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. As we look forward, dear souls, as we look forward right here. To Jesus being confessed as Lord. 
Look to Jesus now and confess Him as Lord. The grace of salvation consists simply in this. Receiving grace to confess Christ as Lord before everyone does. Confess Him now, beholding Him in His humility and exaltation, beholding Him in His beauty and glory, rather than beholding Him in terror or His wrath. Look now before you cannot but look. And once again, notice that we still have not reached the peak. Christ is exalted, that He might be exalted, and yet still another purpose lies ahead. All this is done to the glory of God the Father. If you think unrighteously, just stupidly, foolishly, and sinfully as we can as humans, if you have the inkling in any way of what did the Father do? Don't shirk the Father, the glory He is due in redemption. Yes, the Son gave His life. It was the Father who gave the Son. He gave His Son and He raised the Son. He sent the Son and He has seated His Son. Jesus, in His earthly ministry, did everything for the Father's glory. And now you see that He continues from the heavenly throne which He occupies to do everything He does for the Father's glory. 1 Corinthians 15 explains something of this. Then comes the end when He, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Or do you not even hear an echo of this in the closing of this letter? 4, 19 and 20. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The Father's magnifying the Son Every good thing that flows to you from the Father's hand comes because of Christ. Then it says, to God, our, to, God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So having taken in something now of the valley, shrouded in mist, looking at the peak, enveloped in cloud, can you not exclaim with John 
Clavelle. Oh, what a change is there. Here he sweated, but there he sits. Here he groaned, but there he triumphs. Here he lay upon the ground, but there he sits on the throne of glory. It's so stunning that we can almost be forgiven for getting Paul's aim in all of this. Almost. The stunning thing is that Paul's point in all of this has been concerning us. Our humility, our love and concern for one another in the gospel of Christ. While Christ's humility is clearly laid out for us here as an example for us to imitate, Does his exaltation have any direct bearing on us in that? And I said there's one word here that I think indicates that so. Therefore. We're called to imitate Christ's humiliation with his exaltation as our motivation. Listen to Romans 8, 16-17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. My argument would be, is that the therefore in Philippians 2 functions in the same way that the in order that of Romans 8 functions. The therefore concerning Christ functions the same way that the in order that concerning us functions. Christ humbled himself, therefore he's exalted. Philippians 2, Romans 8, if we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. Imitate Christ in His suffering for the cause of the gospel in the good of God's people to the glory of the Father. You can be assured of this. You will share in His glory. The glory of Christ's exaltation. Indeed, if you're Christ, you've already participated in that very glory. Calvin comments, The consideration, this consideration, Christ's exaltation, however, stirs us up to imitate Him the more cheerfully. When we learn that nothing is more advantageous for us than to be conformed to His image, Now that all are happy who along with Christ voluntarily obeys themselves, he shows by his example. For from the most abject condition, he was exalted to the highest elevation. 
Everyone, therefore, that humbles himself will in like manner be exalted. Who would now be reluctant to exercise humility by means of which the glory of the heavenly kingdom is attained? As Paul wants to move the Philippians, as the Spirit wants to move us, how powerful to put before us not just the humiliation of Christ, but His exaltation. So, be of the same mind. Let's pray. Father, grant us grace to see, convict us now, that our sins of trying to sow disunity in the church that you've made one by the blood of Christ, our failure to be of the same mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel is a sin against the humility and glory of our Lord. But Father, not just conviction, but grace to imitate Christ in His humility, motivated by His exaltation. Father, for Your glory, in Christ's name we pray that You would now, mercifully by Your Spirit, work that into us now. Amen.